Hey everyone, my name is Juan Clark. I'm a second year MHA student in the Sloan Program in Health Administration, and I'll be your host for The Health Conscious. The Health Conscious is a podcast that was started by students in the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. The podcast was created to educate our audience by providing a stimulating discussion on the U.S. healthcare industry and how it works. We'll be interacting with professionals in various sectors of healthcare to hear their career matriculation, perspectives of the current state of healthcare, and key challenges and solutions to address them. As always, we want to thank all of our listeners for their continued support, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome, listeners. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Nate Shinagawa. Nate is a fellow Sloan alum and is currently the Chief Operating Officer at UC Irvine Health in California. It's great to have you on the podcast today, Nate. Yeah, thank you, Juan. Looking forward to it. Of course. Um, so just for our listeners, would you mind maybe sharing a bit of your background? Yeah, happy to, Juan. So I, I grew up in California, uh, and in order to get as far away from my parents as possible, I looked at uh, opportunities to go to college uh, outside of the state, and I ended up at Cornell University. Uh, so I started out as an undergrad sociology major. Uh, my senior year, I decided to run for political office in Ithaca, New York, and I won, and I became a county legislator. A couple of years after that, I decided to really focus on healthcare. So I got my MHA at the Sloan Program in Health Administration. And then I did a uh, internship, uh, which led to uh, other opportunities at the Guthrie Clinic, uh, where I left there as a vice president of operations. I spent five years in the Banner Health System, which is a a 31 hospital system in Arizona. Uh, And I was a chief operating officer at a couple of facilities there and also opened up a new hospital. And then about, gosh, about four or five months ago, I was recruited uh, to uh, join UCI Health as their system chief operating officer. And that's what brings me uh, to where I am today. Wow, what a dynamic career. I definitely want to go a little bit more deeper into that. So, you know, you often hear about people pivoting from other industries toward healthcare, but being a politician, I would definitely say it's probably the first I've, I've heard. So um, what attracted you to the, the field of healthcare? And are there any skills that you gained in your political career that you currently use today in your new role? Yeah, for sure. Well, so I actually had a, a an interesting route even to the political side. You know, I, was, I wasn't a poli-sci major. I wasn't you know, super active, I think, in uh, in like um, a lot of party politics stuff. I was actually a, an activist on campus. So at Cornell, I, I led like every protest rally for just about every cause, whether it was, you know, uh, sustainability and the Kyoto Protocols to supporting ethnic studies uh, on campus. So I was really um, actively involved. And actually, I, I got into politics because I was really involved in a local uh, issue where we had a a pizzeria in, uh, in College Town that was underpaying its workers. And, uh, and they were also taking advantage of the fact they were undocumented. And so I worked with a local organization to get protection for those workers. And then we fought for the back wages of those workers. And that got me kind of connected with the community. And then uh, some community members said, hey, you should run for the county legislature. So that's how I, I kind of got my start uh, yeah. working in the political realm there. And then when I was in politics, you know, it was uh, I, I loved it. I was a county rep and I, you know, I chaired the budget committee. I chaired health and human services and I was making a lot of big change. But, you know, the problem with policy is that you work so many months and years for one thing to pass and it may not pass at all. And when it does pass, it's out of your hands. And now it's up to people to actually implement it. And I started becoming more interested in how people implement things and how they actually turn policy into reality. And so that's what kind of kicked off my interest into healthcare. And so um, 
So I, uh, I was planning, I was actually a legislative aide to a state assemblywoman while I was in uh, the Sloan program. Uh, so I was doing that. Uh, I was working for her as an aide. I was also a full-time legislator and I was going to Sloan. So I had uh, quite a lot to juggle at the same time. Uh, but I was going to spend my summer between my first and second year just continuing to work for this state assemblywoman. And it was actually uh, Dr. Will White, who was the director of the program at the time, who said, you know what, you need to do something different. And I think you'd be a good hospital administrator. And so I uh, decided to interview with the Guthrie Clinic. And, uh, and I had a great time with them. Actually, um, the, the COO, he, was, uh, he also had kind of a, a background uh, supporting uh, migrant health uh, clinics when he was young. And that's what got him involved in the Catholic health system. And that's what got him eventually to being a CEO. And then the CEO of, of Guthrie, he actually was, uh, he had run for city council of Seattle in his 20s and he managed campaigns. And, and so I talked to these folks and I was like, wow, actually, you know, they, they do have, you know, they, they share kind of a lot of the same values because they got into politics for the same reason they got into healthcare, which is being able to help people, right? And especially at a big scale. So um, I ended up working for them and found out that working in hospitals and health systems was a great way to kind of uh, support and empathize, uh, empathize and emphasize my values. Wow. No, uh, what a tremendous kind of uh, matriculation <laughs> in that aspect. I will say I really liked your correlation between, you know, your background in activism and just rep representing others in need because that's what healthcare is. Ultimately, yeah. it's really representing the patients that we serve. So I, I really like the, the correlation of that aspect. But um, something else you also mentioned was the um, transition from policy into reality. And so I think oftentimes, yeah. you know, a lot of people really do say we need, you know, a lot of things in policy to be changed and, and whatever. But at the same time, it also takes those on the ground to really do it. So you understanding both Absolutely. dynamics. And, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's definitely very cool. Exactly. And and I think that that's where, you know, uh, people do get so hung up on the policy. But, you know, think about even this with the Affordable Care Act, right, the hundreds of pages of that legislation. Well, that hundreds of pages led to hundreds of thousands of pages of rules and regulations. Right. Yeah. And so 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 who wrote those rules and regulations? Well, that was a different group of people, not congressmen and senators. Right. It was the actual different you know, bodies within the federal government that did that. But then they implemented and they put those rules and regulations out. And now it's up to us in hospitals and health systems to interpret them right, and be able to execute and implement. And so there's a lot more to change, especially when you're talking at a policy level, than I think people really think about. And I think that at this level, I feel like I can make the biggest difference because I get those rules coming to me or this new legislation, and I go, okay, how do I make the most of it to serve our patients the best we can? Wow. Well, we definitely, uh, I think in healthcare, we have you positioned in the right spot, I would say that. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, I want to pivot maybe just a little bit and just talk a little bit more just about either UC Irvine and also just kind of like the work that you do. Um, yeah. So the operations department is usually kind of like the heartbeat throughout most hospital systems, and it typically looks very different across every different hospital. Mm -hmm. So maybe can you discuss what operation looks like at UC Irvine and then what your typical day of a CEO looks like? Yeah, happy to. And so, you know, when you think about the C-suite, um, there is the chief executive officer, and he is the he or she is the head of the organization. And often much of their job is working with external stakeholders and partners. It's, it's really working alongside the chief strategy officer on the future of the organization. And then it's ensuring that there's accountability all the way you know, uh, throughout the organization. But when they get to that accountability part, 
a lot of that has to do with this chief operating officer. So the chief operating officer is the person that's really there to ensure that the day-to-day -day operations are actually being done, that you know, key performance measures are, are being able to meet target. And if they're not meeting target, what are the ways that we can provide tools, resources, support, break down barriers in order to achieve those? And so if you look at my job description, technically I'm in charge of everything from all the support and ancillary services of the hospital. So that's like your radiology, uh, that's your lab, that's your you know, acute therapies. I'm also in charge of the whole ambulatory network. So all of our uh, regional clinics and medical practice office, offices. Uh, and I'm also in charge of the, building the new Irvine campus, which is a new $1.3 billion campus that we're building on the UC Irvine uh, uh, University campus. Exciting. And so, um, so those are all things that I'm technically on paper involved in, but the reality is, is that I have to ensure that we're hitting our day-to-day -day metrics so that we can achieve the long-term you know, goals of the organization. And so as a result, even though you know, I'm, uh, I'm not over any of the nursing departments on, on paper, um, the chief nurse executive and I, we partner all the time on how we can improve nursing operations, just as we partner on improving you know, the operations on the ancillary side as well. Wow. No, I, I definitely really appreciate that. First and foremost, thank you for our listeners for actually, you know, differentiating a little bit more about the C-suite. So you, again, you do have your chief executive officer, who I, you know, that you um, kind of went over the role and then how you play a role as a chief operating officer opening for the organization. So being, you know, kind of like the accountability person for that throughout the, the organization is really just, I would personally say probably interesting dynamic um, as it well is, as, yeah. you know, of course. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of C, if you look at most CEOs, they came from being COOs. Um, and that's because, you know, you can't really be a C, or not you can't, but it's hard, right? To be a CEO who's implementing the long-term vision of the organization without having a mastery of what the day-to-day -day operations are that help you get to that place, right? So it's like, you know, you can't just tell a toddler to start running one day, right? You know, a toddler needs to learn how to how to, to roll around and sit up and then crawl and then walk and then run, right? And so you so the COO job is really critical. And if you want the organization to run, you need to know how to walk first. And I think we're the ones that help make that happen. <laughs> All right. So the masters of daily active management. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, you know, as you kind of already mentioned, you know, some exciting stuff is going on at UCI. As you all are building a brand new kind of medical uh, complex that's currently going to be on the UC Irvine campus. Um, so I want to ask, you know, what, what do you think the impact of building a new site would be for the community that's currently um, in Irvine, as well as have you experienced any challenges in the development of the complex? Yeah. So this is an interesting point to give a little bit of history on the UC system. Oh, so please. the University of California right, is, you know, is the biggest, um, you know, university, state university system, you know, I think, you know, in the country and probably the world, right, and uh, there's the University of California, and then there's the California State Universities. The University of California has five hospital systems that also have a health system with, with an academic medical center that's attached to it, right, or at least one academic medical center, and so, um, so with that context, what happened is that how did those start? They actually started back in the, gosh, you know, depending on the time period, but the 50s, the 60s, you know, uh, maybe even some into the 70s, where there were county hospitals, and they were the county hospitals, often the safety net hospitals, and the UC system uh, worked with the counties to acquire those hospitals, make them the kind of academic centers for those particular communities, and make it a place where their residents and fellows would be trained as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so, 
So when you, so with that background, so UCI, our hospital, our main campus is actually in Orange. Orange, California is actually 20 minutes away from Irvine, where the University of California, Irvine is. So we're not on campus. We're 20 minutes away. We're in the heart of Orange, which is right next to Anaheim. So it's like Disneyland, Garden Grove, and a very densely populated metro area. And so we're also the safety net hospital. And so we provide, you know, the, the majority of the Medicaid population care. I mean, are, are we are not a, the majority, but a significant amount of it, probably our greater share than any of our other hospitals in this area. And so, so for us, though, we're focused, you know, we're centered in Orange, California, but, um, but we know that, you know, just 20 minutes down the road, we have a whole community of people that want access to our world-class physicians wow. because we have, you know, we are a nationally ranked, you know, um, organization. We're top 50, for example, in oncology per new U.S. News and World Report. You know, we're the only NCI designated cancer center in the state in, in Orange. I'm sorry, in Orange County. And we're also the only academic center in all, all of Orange County. And that's a county of 4.2 million people. Right. Wow. And so so we wanted to provide access to the south side of the county, uh, which is in the Irvine area. And so that's where we're building this new 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 campus. And also by putting it on the university's campus, we get a lot more leverage with new technology, new research, you know, new clinical advancements. Actually, we just got a, a few years ago, got a $200 million donation uh, to open up the Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute. And we just broke ground on it, not broke ground on it, I'm sorry, we ribbon cut. Uh, oh, ribbon wow. Cutting. Naturally, it's open now. It's now open as of last Monday. And we're doing integrative health there. So this is, you're, we're talking... You know, everything from, you know, acupuncture to kind of whole health medicine. I mean, you know, uh, looking at, you know, traditionally what used to be termed considered alternative medicines and doing research around it so that we can really give it the critic, the clinical kind of uh, credibility, right, to be used in, in, in the acute care settings, right? So really great advancements. And it's all possible now because we'll have this, I mean, it will be even more possible and it will grow now that we'll have this campus on the universities. Um, uh, actual uh, area. Wow. Well, thank you for kind of orienting us to, again, like the the status of the UC system. I think that yeah. is even new knowledge to myself when I you yeah. know, previously yeah. worked in there, but that's still very interesting to hear. Um, I will say one thing that you really, really talked about that I really enjoyed is that, you know, it's not really about where the hospital is, it's where the patients are. So that yeah. you all, even the fact you all are in Orange County, but you recognize that many of your patients uh, may actually come from South Orange is that's me personally is like great community health or at least great uh, an assessment of again where the patient current uh, the needs are for that and um and last thing last thing you spoke about on the campus was that you know being uh, next to the school it pretty really put you at the trifecta of you know research education and healthcare and that really stimulates the most innovation so i would just love to see how care is uh, continue to be transformed in the uc system that'd be really cool to see yeah definitely i i'm i'm so excited for it and I know is one of the things as a Cordell student, I was like, man, I wish that, you know, Weill Medical Center was in Ithaca, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, cause think about all that kind of, you know, cross-pollination of, you know, great ideas and, and uh, great innovations that could happen even at a greater rate. And already, I mean, they do a good job with it today, but just Absolutely. imagine the possibilities that comes with that proximity, right? I'm sure they're endless. I'm sure of it. Uh, so I just want to pivot maybe just a little bit uh, again, one last time into maybe just talk just a little bit about uh, leadership. 
to an extent. I, I know you have a phenomenal career being being a leader and still going, uh, which which is still amazing to this day. But uh, you've had a very interesting and advanced career matriculation that I would say than most other people. Were there any maybe specific lessons that you learned along your journey that helped you in your leadership development? Yeah, Juan, I think that you know. So I had the benefit of of kind of moving up pretty quickly when it comes to getting up to the C suite. So. I graduated in 09 and I became a chief operating officer of a 400 bed hospital in, in 2017. So about eight years. Right. And so, uh, so that was fast. And, you know, and I, and, and I think a few things kind of point to it. So, um, so number one is that it was all, it all came down to, I think, mentorship. So I had a great opportunity, the first health system that I worked for, I had a whole C-suite, even at the system level and at my local hospital level, that was all dedicated to my development. And they gave me lots of opportunities to try, to succeed, to fail. Uh, and, uh, and they gave me grace when I did fail. And so those learning opportunities were incredible. And, uh, and so I, at that one institution, I went from being an intern to a uh, program manager in clinical regulatory compliance, to a director of support services, to a vice president of operations, all within that like a seven-year time frame. Wow. And so, uh, so uh, in addition to that mentorship, the other thing that was really powerful, and I, you know, I'd love to talk about this a little bit more too, maybe in the next question, is this concept of you know being a a big fish in kind of a uh, you know a smaller pond, right? You know, I worked for a health system that was only four hospitals at the time, and so they gave me a lot of opportunity uh, to learn and grow. And because I was you know only one fellow and only one intern you know, uh, at this system, uh, and I had all this access to these C-suite members, it gave me a lot more opportunity than I think a lot of my peers had coming out of the, uh, the Sloan program. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two big ones. The other things I think for, for just what leadership lessons kind of helped me along the way is this uh, concept of, you know, leading with heart and trusting people from the start. It's probably related to, you know, now something that everybody talks about, which is this concept of psychological safety. You know, I think one of the areas that I really thrive in is that I can make people feel really comfortable, right, about raising concerns and issues. Uh, I, uh, I've always been the kind of guy where when there was a patient complaint, you know, and nobody could get through if people called me, you know, I was more than often than not able to break through with a patient and, you know, and, and talk them through the situation and get them to see different perspectives, right? And I think a lot of it has to do with just me making it a safe space. So how do you make it a safe space? You know, you listen to people, you know, you share that you have the same goals that they do. You know, you actively, when I say listen, by the way, I mean actively listen. So you reflect back on what they're saying so that you confirm and they, you know, they're your understanding, but with them, you show them that you're listening. Um, right. You know, you, you kind of, uh, when you're talking through a difficult situation, you know, you, um, uh, when you, you share your own observations, you don't share what other people are thinking, right? So that way it's like not as people don't become as defensive. I mean, so many things that are really key like that. And I think those are skills that I learned when I was in politics, because in politics, you don't have authority over people, okay? So think about this, right? So when you're a legislator, uh, you are one of many other legislators. So in my case, I was one out of 15 people and we all were elected by our own constituents. And so I didn't have any more power over the next legislator, right? I, I, all I could do is influence them. And when I needed their votes, I had to make a case and I had to 
to show that I cared about the concerns. You know, I had to compromise and negotiate and, and work on, on things together with them. And I had to influence them along the way so that we can get to a common goal or outcome. And the reality is kind of true. And even when you get into executive leadership, you know, we can, uh, you know, there's a difference between influence and authority, right? So if I start throwing around my authority all the time and saying, I'm the COO, you better do this. Um, I'll lose credibility pretty fast. I'll lose credibility pretty fast. And you, when you look at most people that, you know, when you look at Beckers and you see all the CEO moves, I guarantee you that a CEO that only lasted a few months at a particular place, it's probably because they thought they had all this authority and they spent it all. And then they lost. And when you spend your authority, you lose your credibility. Gone. Wow. Right? It's gone. It's gone. Right. But when you use your influence, that's a limitless wealth. Right. So when you use your influence and you get people to be inspired and motivated and they feel like they can trust you and you trust them, you know, um, then then you could do that all day long without ever losing. Right. All you do is gain. Right. Um, you know, uh, because you're all working towards that common vision. And so that, you know, leading, you know, leading with heart and trusting from the start and making it safe. I think that was kind of a, a crucial pillar uh, to being able to rise up, you know, in executive leadership. Absolutely. Wow. You just dropped a lot of gems uh, just <laughs> that statement. No, you definitely don't know. I think a lot of key parts that I think we've either heard in some different aspects or even new information that maybe kind of phrase things a little bit differently. So again, yeah. I mean, you know, first talking on mentorship, I think that it's amazing that you say, you know, you were the kind of only intern, and only fellow. So you almost had a whole team of C-suite members that really dedicated to your development, which is something that you know, I think it's uh, oftentimes now is pretty rare. Um, yeah. And then even from there, your concept of psychological safety, that is the first I've heard of it kind of coined in that that's, uh, kind of phrase to an extent. But again, creating that safe space to where people feel comfortable disclosing information or approaching you with the problem or just knowing that, you know, you're there to really help them and not necessarily exacerbate or make the, the problem worse. So that's definitely uh, something I, I'll take home for sure. And then... Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, this becomes, that skill set becomes even more important when you're talking about academic medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, uh, in academic medicine, you, the, the school, you have a partnership between the medical center and the school of medicine, right? And they, the school of medicine, you know, is, is primarily a discovery and teaching organization. So they have a different leadership and, you know, their goals are, are aligned, I think, but they have, but, but maybe a little bit nuanced, a little bit different. Right. right. And so, uh, and in, in the School of Medicine, you know, you're uh, in an academic system, you know, the chairs and their faculty are the, are the providers for the medical center, right? So we end up working together quite a lot, but they have a lot of autonomy and control. And depending on what system you're at, they can have a lot of autonomy and control. Like, you know, right. I know Juan, you were at UCLA for your internship, you know, at UCLA, those chairs wield considerable Right. You know, right. influence. Right. And they actually even structurally, they have a lot of power even over how their department funds are spent. Right. right. And so so it's and, and, and that could be tens of millions of dollars. Right. So so when you're in that kind of situation, right, those relationships matter more than anything. And so uh, so so it, it may be that I don't even have authority to spend. Right. When going back to my spending authority kind of analogy that I had. Right. Well, it's like, you know, there may not be authority to spend. So all I can do is influence. And if I'm influent, if I'm good at influencing, then it's going to be really critical um, and helpful uh, for, you know, my success or the success of others, right? If you're in the same situation. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. 
Um, I know previously you kind of made the, the comment of uh, big fish in a smaller pond. So I wanted to pick on that just like a tad bit. Yeah. Kind of, uh, again, ask, you know, is there anything that you would like to maybe give advice for our listeners who may be either beginning or are entering the early phase of their career? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, this big fish, small pond concept, you know, it's been around, obviously, for probably as long as any organizational psychology has been around. And uh, but it's uh, in the book, uh, I think it's in, in uh, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. He actually talks about it quite a bit. And one of the things that I thought was interesting in that book is he talked about pre-med and the number of people that drop out of being pre-med. And it's really interesting because if you were to study, um, you know, Harvard University and the number of students that, that start off pre-med and the number that drop out, it's kind of a shame because you think about it, it's like, well, you know, whether you graduate from Arizona State as an undergrad or Harvard as an undergrad, if you go to med school and you do your residency, all that stuff, you're still at the end of the day, a doctor. Right, right. right. So, so then, you know, so this phenomenon was interesting. It's like, well, what happens? And what happens is that when people go to Harvard, they're surrounded by other people that got accepted to Harvard. And so it's a really smart people with other really smart people. And what happens is that we compare ourselves to others, right? And so, so what happens is that when we're in a, when we, when we join a large organization and we don't have a good support structure, right? We, what ends up happening is that we feel like we're just one of many wow. and we compare ourselves to others. And if we're not getting the attention and support, then we're going to think, oh, I'm not cut out for this and people leave. And so the reason why I share this is kind of securitous, but I'm getting to somewhere, I promise. That we're following. Is that, is that when you join, like, you know, if you choose to do a fellowship and you're one of five different fellows, and your, what happens is that your now the attention of the C-suite is split between those five people. And what if one of the people gets placed in, you know, with the COO, you know, who has lots of projects going on, you know, and so therefore that person gets a lot more access. And then the other person is put with a C-suite member that's maybe more focused on a particular area and doesn't get the same level of access. Well, then that one person might get more opportunities. And then the other person goes, oh, gosh, I guess. I'm not, you know, they might, in other words, they might attribute it to themselves when it was actually the structure that did it, not them, right? right? So it's not like they, that they weren't seeking out opportunities. It was just that they were one of five and somebody else just happened to have more access because of, of who they were placed towards, right? So, so what happens is that, you know, if you join big programs, you can feel like you're kind of lost in the shuffle, right? And, and it's harder to stand out. And so um, on the other, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, though, Right. If you join a program where you're one fellow, well, now you're not just working with the COO, you're working with the CIO, the CNO, the mm -hmm. CFO, right? You're getting access to all these people. They're giving you, they're each giving you advice, opportunities, new projects, right? And so suddenly you get a lot of, uh, of breath in a very short amount of time. And that breath not only gives you better experience, but more opportunities too. And so, so you can then find you'll have a higher likelihood of getting into that first leadership position. And if you get in a good leadership position to begin with, then it's going to help you get to the next one and the next one and the next one, right? So, you know, I often think about this in terms of, you know, my, my start. I was in the Guthrie Clinic, which is a four hospital system. And I was able to rise really fast because I was just one of, right? right. Um, and it was in a rural area. So it was hard for them to find talent. And so when they had job openings, they were like, oh, you know, we'll do a national search, but that could take a year, or we could put Nate in charge here in the interim and see how he does. And that's what they did. And I did well, and I got the jobs, right? Um, so I think about that, 
versus my time at Banner. At Banner, it's a 31 hospital system. And so at 31 hospitals, how do you get the attention, right? Of the COO of the whole organization, right? And so it was very different. And so I often think, gosh, if I started out at Banner, it probably would have been harder, right? To move up this fast because I would have been just trying to get my head, to poke my head up to just be noticed, right? And, and it's harder to be noticed when you're part of such a large organization. So, so I, you know, that's, I don't know, this is a, a long, kind of a long, <laughs> long, long yes, kind of monologue here. Yes. It's just advice for fellows, I'm not fellows, for graduates of, of any of these programs, if you're about to graduate, just think about that, right? You know, it's, it's nice to live in the big cities. It's nice to work for a reputable organization that everybody's heard of, right? But, um, but, but maybe it's, it's better to be part of one, another reputable organization, no doubt, but maybe one that people haven't less heard of as much. Maybe, and maybe they get a little less, you know, their fellowship program's not as big. Maybe they're, you know, not in the city. They're maybe an hour away from the city, right? And so, so they're hungry, they're more hungry for talent, right? But just, you know, think about those places because if you're early in your career, what you want probably is, is that breadth of experience and that access to C-suite so that you can learn as much as possible in a short amount of time and get good opportunity for that next job. No, I, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. And even when I think about my reasons for applying to Sloan, you know, there are like a lot of other MHA programs, but I didn't really want a bigger program. I kind of, again, wanted to be in a smaller, more intimate program that would present me more opportunities. And so uh, even now, you know, I can say that I'm, you know, SSA president, but also an ambassador or yes. I do other things on campus yeah. as well. Like you don't really get those opportunities when you become one of uh, a thousand, but being, you know, kind of like the one of one to an extent, I, I think that's a really, really good mentality that not a lot of people really kind of acknowledge. That's right. That's right. And, you know, this is what's interesting, too, about when you start applying for executive level roles is that so people, you know, what they what they want to know is, did you have um, did you have a role with a big enough scope? And and, you know, and what was your title, et cetera, right before they could see whether or not your material for the next job. And so they don't care necessarily like, you know, uh, the details right behind you know, what that particular organization is like. So in other words, uh, let me, I mean, that doesn't sound right, but let me rephrase it, okay? okay? So, and bear with me on this, is that I was a VP of operations for a 250-bed hospital. Mm-hmm. And Banner Health, right, saw that as good enough, right? Because I had a big enough scope, right? I oversaw a lot. I had a breadth of experience. And they saw that as enough to make me the chief operating officer of a 400-bed hospital. Yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, once you break into the VP level or the COO level, right, now you can compete for other jobs at that level. So whether it's 100 beds or 250 beds or 400 beds, what people want to know is, did you have that level of leadership where you had to run the day to day, where you had to be strategic at the same time? And then once they, once, you know, you get your foot in the door in the interview process, then it's a matter of, okay, then showing people your personality, showing people your work ethic, showing people your experiences that will help you get the job. Um, and so, you know, so if you were to compare like a, a director at the Cleveland Clinic, right, going for the same job as a vice president of operations at the smaller Guthrie Clinic, well, the vice president of operations at a smaller place actually probably has the edge because that director, even though they came from the Cleveland Clinic, which is highly reputable, they only had a narrow scope. Right. Whereas the VP of operations in Guthrie had a broad scope, right? And so that's makes him a more attractive candidate. So just other food for thought, you know, as people advance in their careers. 
Absolutely. I think, again, scope is something that, I, you know, is very interesting when you think about that, because typically we don't really, uh, as soon as you graduate from your MHA program, you don't really automatically say, how do I get the biggest scope? It's more of just, how do I get the <laughs> position? How do I maybe just get yeah. some some interaction with leadership? But again, I think that's a really great perspective when you think about scope and just your responsibilities and then how that could be comparable to other uh, C-suite or like vice presidential type of positions. So that's, that's definitely very interesting. Yeah. So last kind of question I, I, I have, kind of a, a thought question to an extent, but um, this past summer in my internship, I really got the opportunity to learn about organizational dynamics uh, amongst the C-suite, but also just being a part of the UC system. And so I know that you previously kind of uh, talked a little bit about the UC system, but I was wondering if you could talk about the dynamic of UC Irvine within the system and then how to best that navigate leadership dynamics. Yeah. So uh, the University of California system is pretty unique because, you know, we are, um, we all all the universities, so actually, let me start off with the health system. So all the health systems are actually part of the university that they're under. So, so, the, the, so in the UC Irvine case, our CEO reports to the vice chancellor of health, of, of health sciences, and the vice chancellor of health sciences is over both the medical center and, or the, the health system and the school of medicine. And he reports to the chancellor. And the chancellor reports to the University of California uh, presidents. Right? So, uh, so in that sense, right? Even the health systems were part of the university. Um, and so, at the U, at the UCOP level, which is the University of California Office of the President, you know, we're all kind of we're all part of the same system. We share a lot of the same kind of um, HR systems. Uh, we're able to like leverage economies of scale as one big system, but we still operate pretty independently. Right, we make strategic decisions, uh, and of course, we have to have sign off from the, the president and the University of California regents. But you know, they approve what we want to what we want to do, but they don't dictate. You know, they don't say, "Hey, follow this strategy." Right. Instead, what we do is we develop our strategy, what our focus is, and we present it to them for their approval. And that's very different. And so we are. Um, so we are as a University of California. We each kind of have our own ability to set uh, where our futures are going to go, um, but we do it in that kind of uh, kind of coordination. Now, UCI Health is unique because we're the smallest of the health systems, and so right now we are about 1.5 billion dollars in net patient revenues, right? And uh, and University of California uh, Davis is like two and a half billion, right? And UC San Diego is is two and a half billion, and so. So 1.5 billion is still considered pretty large. It's actually twice as big as the first system that I started out in, right? Um, but, uh, but still, it is not as big as the other UCs. So it gives us this ability to be, um, I think, very agile. And so UC Irvine, we're able to, uh, we're the first ones that really developed, we actually got state approval for, um, for care at home, for inpatient care at home. We are able to move very fast in that realm. Uh, so that was huge. Uh, when it came to a lot of telehealth advancements, we were the first ones kind of out of the gate uh, in many respects. Um, when it comes to new clinical advancements, we can be very fast uh, because of that. And so it uh, it gives us a real ability to be at the cutting edge uh, with the size of our system. Now, we are growing massively at the same time. And so in about five years, we'll probably be about almost a 2.5, even $2.8 billion system because we're building a brand new campus in Irvine. So, so it's an incredible moment for growth. Um, I will say that the UCs, um, we also, we collaborate a lot together. And so we learn from each other on patient experience, on clinical quality, 
And, if, and actually, when you look at quality rankings, uh, Vizient is one of those groups that does, that does those rankings. When you look at the, the top academic facility, uh, I mean, centers across the country, the UCs, all five of us, we're usually in the top 10, top 20, uh, because you know, we are able to leverage each other's knowledge. Wow, I really like that, that that dynamic. And then more importantly, I really like how you mentioned the collaboration between all the different UCs. So not only is it really just an advantage for each individual hospital to be connected, but also the fact that you all can leverage each other's experience or knowledge or uh, either uh, knowledge about programs, you know, amongst the, the different UCs. And so that really is a, a really cool dynamic that most, I think, hospital systems don't really get opportunity to to really have. Yeah, absolutely. Lastly, I know, I know that, again, you're kind of uh, new in your role to an extent, you know, uh, there about four to five months. But I wanted to just ask, you know, how as you start your new role, how have you been able to navigate different leadership dynamics? Is there any advice you maybe would give to some of our new or early careerists on how they could best do it when they join a system? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's tough, right, whenever you start a new a new job, especially when it's a job that's bigger. You know, like for me, um, I've had kind of progressive leadership roles. So I you know, went from my VP of ops job to being a COO. And that was just at a facility level, right? So I had one hospital to think of. Today, I have a major academic medical center that I have to think about, plus, you know, more than a dozen ambulatory sites, plus, um, you know, growth of a new campus. And so every time I've, I've, I've taken a new job, my scope is significantly increased, right? Yeah. And so, so that's tough, you know, to be able to learn uh, while still trying to advance. And that's kind of the challenge of the COO job in general. And that's one of the things I love about it is that there is a mastery that one has to have between achieving what's needed at the day-to-day and while still advancing the long-term strategy of the organization. And so um, so that's kind of how I've seen my time here starting in the first four or five months. So brass tacks, I've just done my uh, the best job I can to understand all the metrics and where they come from. I've done, uh, I've reached out to every chair. I do meetings with people on a regular basis, meet and greets, so that I get to know the organization because I can't really achieve anything unless I have great relationships um, and trust uh, so that we can, you know, work together, right, towards our common goals. And so I spend a lot of time there. But also, um, there are things that need to be improved on, that need to be worked on. And I think this is where a lot of leaders struggle is it's, is that, you know, do you t- take the approach of, okay, I'm new. So it's like, you know, for example, the president of the United States, they, when you read like presidential biographies, they often talk about the first 100 days. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that is that when you're elected president of the United States, you have a mandate from the public, right? Because you got elected to be able to make change. And often it's their first 100 days where they have the most credibility to make these massive changes. So think like the Affordable Care Act or think the founding of Social Security and Medicare and all these things, you know, major programs, often they occurred in the first 100 days of a, of the pre- of, of a, a president's term. And so, um, so, you know, some people think, okay, well, is that, do I need to do the same thing in a new job? <laughs> and I'll say, it depends, right? right? So if you were brought in because there was a turnaround needed of an organization, then I agree, 100 days is what you got. You got to focus on that and you got to start making changes and hit the ground running. But if your job is instead to take an already great organization, which UCI Health is, and advance it to the next level, then you need to take a step back and you need to build relationships, create trust, you know, make sure that you know, everybody's goals are aligned. And then you need to build that foundation so that you can then start advancing together as a team. And so I think about, about you know, um, probably right after about three months from me, 
I was finally at a point where I think I knew enough people, I understood the work well enough that I could start saying, you know, I think we could do it a little differently. And I had the trust of people to be able to say, yeah, I'm open to that. And, uh, and now we're able to do some pretty neat things um, because of that, that trust and relationships that were built. Wow. First hundred days. I, that's definitely something I'm going to be writing down as I. <laughs> well, yeah, it, yeah, it depends, right? You know, what your, what your mandate is, right? So are you there to change things rapidly or are you there to improve something that's already great? And I think there's different approaches, right? Different approaches. Very true. Well, I really do like yours. I'll say that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but as always, you know, I definitely want to thank you for joining us today. I have a lot of food for thought that you share. So I'm, I'm sure after this episode, people will be very well fed. So I definitely want to thank you for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Juan. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course, of course. And as always, thank you to our listeners for listening. And if you uh, like the episodes, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast.